Hey, it's Zach here, and super quick before we dive into the show. If you haven't already, I want to make sure that you have subscribed to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter, because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'll even send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter. All right, on to today's episode. My name is Zach Arnold, and I'm a former Hollywood film and television editor turned career strategist and the creator of Optimize Yourself, where I help artists, creatives, and storytellers just like you design the more balanced, more sustainable, and more fulfilling creative career that you deserve. In a nutshell, I'm Tim Ferriss meets Ted Lasso, minus the mustache, because I am obsessed with both learning everything I can about optimizing human potential while also inspiring you to realize yours. If you are ready to step outside your comfort zone, let's dive right in and unlock the optimized version of you. Hello, and welcome to the Optimize Yourself podcast, where I share honest and candid conversations with best-selling authors, world-class athletes, Hollywood legends, elite experts in a variety of fields, as well as everyday people that are achieving extraordinary things. It means the world to me that with all the podcast choices out there, you have chosen to invest your valuable time, energy, and attention with me. Now, before we get started, don't forget to visit optimizeyourself.me slash podcast so you can subscribe, leave a review, and so you can also download your unique customized podcast playlist where I'm gonna send you the five best expert interviews from our archives to help you achieve your specific goals. So on that note, without further ado, let's get right to today's guest. I have spent my entire career wondering what the difference is between those who simply string along one job after another to pay the bills and those who have extraordinary resumes, amazing credits, and award-winning careers. You might assume that it's some combination of God-given talent, luck, and hard work. First of all, if you've listened to me for any amount of time, you know that I consider luck to be a four-letter word, so that's out. But I do believe that talent and hard work absolutely play a role when it comes to success. However, I think the difference for those who reach the highest levels is that they are simply playing a totally different game than everybody else. Most people are playing a game of checkers. The best of the best are playing chess. Today's guest, ace editor Michelle Tesoro, has worked on critically acclaimed shows such as House of Cards, Godless on the Basis of Sex, When They See Us, and most recently, The Queen's Gambit. But rather than talk about her creative process editing the Queen's Gamut. Instead, today, Michelle and I take a different approach in this conversation, and we discuss the metaphor of chess as life and how you can apply a long-term, more strategic chess-like approach to your career. Michelle and I had such an in-depth conversation that I ended up making this a two-part series. So in this first part, we discuss how Michelle chooses the projects and the people that she works with, and we discover how there is a common theme running through much of her work that keeps her engaged and passionate, despite the arduous nature of all of the projects that she takes on. Michelle also shares what she believes to be her greatest assets and soft skills outside the editing timeline that have led to her tremendous success in Hollywood. And finally, Yes, I am keenly aware that Michelle has been making the rounds on the podcast circuit and is frankly everywhere right now, but rest assured, no matter what you may have listened to already, this is a very candid conversation that covers completely new and fresh ground with stories you definitely haven't heard on other shows. 
And you don't want to miss part two next week, where I put Michelle on the hot seat to discuss the challenge of balancing her career with the rest of her life. Lastly is a super quick disclaimer. I had some audio connection issues, and I apologize in advance for the less than stellar quality of this specific interview. But frankly, this conversation was lightning in a bottle, and I wasn't going to try and capture it twice just for the sake of audio fidelity. All right, without further ado, my conversation with Ace Editor Michelle Tesoro. I'm here today with Michelle Tesoro, member of American Cinema Editors. You are a television and a feature film editor, and some of your recent work includes Godless on the Basis of Sex, When They See Us, and most recently, a little-known project on Netflix that got about 150 gazillion viewers, which was The Queen's Gambit, and some of your more historical work that is equally as impressive includes shows like The Newsroom, House of Cards, Luck in Treatment, and Fringe. But there's one thing that you don't put on your about page in your resume and IMDb that, frankly, we're probably going to talk more about, which is <laughs> that you applied for the ACE internship and you didn't get it. So on that note, Michelle, it is a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thanks for having me, Zach. I love that introduction. <laughs> it just made me laugh. I'm assuming nobody else has ever brought that up in your about page in your bio before. It's not the kind of thing you put a bunch no. of asterisks in and you highlight, but I think there's going to be a lot of value in talking about that a little later. In yes. yes. So I have some really good news for you. It may be good okay. news for the audience and it might not, but I want to make it very clear to them. You and I are not going to talk about the Queen's Gambit today. If somebody was listening and they're thinking to themselves, I really want to understand how did she do all the split screens or how did she pace it out? How did you make chess interesting to watch? Guess what? You've done the rounds and there are amazing interviews about that already. And I'm even going to publicize them in the show notes. So if somebody wants to listen to some of those uh, two of my colleagues that I highly recommend, you did an interview with Joaquin Elizondo for Hollywood Editing Mentor and also with Steve Hullfish for Art of the Cut. I'm going to put links to those. So if people want to dive into the craft of the Queen's Gambit and editorial and what was it like taking notes from Scott Frank, et cetera, et cetera, all amazing material. There's no reason I need to rehash it with you. We're going to go a whole lot deeper, but here's the caveat. We might not be talking about the Queen's Gambit, but boy, are we going to talk about chess because I believe <laughs> that chess is one of the most brilliant metaphors for life. And there's a quote that I want to pull from the, uh, the final episode right before the big match, and I'm not going to spoil it for the 14 people on the planet that haven't watched it yet, but there's a quote that it just popped off the page and I said, this is what the interview is all about. And it's a quote from Thomas Huxley from way back in the 1800s. And to paraphrase, it basically says, the chessboard is the world. The pieces are the phenomena of the universe. The rules of the game are what we call the laws of nature. And the player on the other side is hidden from us. Mm. I really believe, and I teach this to all the students in my coaching and mentorship program, that if you're going to be successful, no matter what you pursue, that you have to play a game of chess and not a game of checkers. And I think so many people are playing a game of checkers, trying to make the next move, trying to get the next gig, whatever it might be, because it can seem so daunting to go after the larger chess match. So that's more what I want to talk about today is this idea of approaching life like a game of chess, the various strategies that you've used to get where you are today, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that's going to kind of be the, the general idea. Where it goes from here, I have no idea. There's probably so many good stories that we can tell. Um, but where I want to start 
is we don't have to rehash your entire backstory of all the steps that you took to make it into the industry and whatnot. But what I really love to understand about creative professionals, specifically those that get to the level where you are now, what was the first spark? What was the first time that you were doing the craft and you're like, whoa, there's something to this and I want a lot more of this drug. Do you remember what the first moment is that you said, I think editing might be for me? Well, it's interesting because I think about that moment, there's probably like three or four small moments and then maybe a fifth bigger moment where I actually realized that I could do it as a career or that it's kind of where it was sort of solidified. So these little moments were, so I took, I, I think every little editing class that I took growing up, like there was one at Columbia College that I took for, they had a Columbia College high school summer program that I took like a 60 millimeter bullocks class and you had to shoot and cut your own thing. And it was all on like a little um, viewfinder moviola thing. And I was physically doing it and I had more fun doing it. And I loved doing like little wipes and stuff. And, you know, although I, I did like shooting, you know, so I wasn't quite sure what it was. And then I think when I went to um, college and we, you know, I had to learn, you know, you learn the Avid and you, we were cutting on the Steenbeck. I think I was realizing that I was better at it than some other people and that I liked that the time in that room a little better. And then it really solidified with me when I was learning the Avid and the project was we all had to shoot an artist documentary. Like we had to, we had to find like a street artist or somebody and do a portrait of them, like a five to 20 minute little documentary about them. And I did one on the street artist and it was so controversial. Like I put this art, I, I put this documentary together and I had like an interview with him and he was a performance artist in that, you know, he had a disability in his hips and in New York, he, the way he would get around um, was on a skateboard. He went by crutch and he had created these crutches that had like a circular bottom to them so that when he would get around New York, it would, he would go really fast. And so that was kind of, you know, you would see him around town and then his performance art was basically he would go into a public square, whether that be Union Square or in Moscow or any other country. And because he was he had to use crutches to, to walk around because of this um, hip disability he had, the performance was him in various stages of either falling or dis disabledness, right? And so it was interesting because he would do it to you. Like if I met him, when I met him the first time we were walking together and he kept like flipping his skateboard and dropping it in front of me. And then I kept picking it up and I kept picking it up. And after a while, it's like, well, why am I picking it up? Because he obviously does this all day. You know, he doesn't need me to pick it up. And that was kind of his, the point of his performance art. And it was very controversial with people because they thought that that was taking advantage. So you can argue with that all day long. And which when I did the documentary and I interviewed him about what his performance art meant to him and all that, you know, I put it together and 
you know, and he was really interested in how I was going to present him to other people. And, and I didn't realize at the time, cause I was young and whatever, I was 20 years old and, and I showed it and it angered people. And, and some people thought it was amazing. And some people thought, and, and I, then I realized why he was so interested in how I was going to put it together because the manipulation of, of what we do, whether you're doing it as like a fiction or you're presenting something real, it, it's always going to be a point of view. And you're always making a hypothesis, a statement, and and how you put those things together, you're telling a story and you have to be careful what story you're trying to tell, right? And I think for me, that is a moment is, is uh, that was solidified for me that this is where I thought this part of filmmaking was the strongest part. Because when I tried doing the other things, you know, I didn't really enjoy the group net, you know, being around a bunch of people on yeah, set, I'm right there with you, something. by the way. That's why that's one that. of the biggest reasons I'm in the edit room is yeah, being on yeah. set. Ugh, no, no, thank yeah, you. no, no, thanks a lot. It's a lot of, you know, waiting, hurry up and wait. A lot of people ask me, you know, do would you ever direct? And, and the answer for that for me, is like, you know, look, I, I, I love directors. I like obviously what they do. I, I think it's really important. I never want to be that person to have to try to answer all those fires. <laughs> it's just, again, a part of the, the industry that I'm just not, I, it, I'm not strong in. And I, I think lucky for me, I realized that early on and I kind of knew where my strengths were and how I can also have a creative outlet and have those two things work together you know, and discovered that before I went into the world to try to make money, you know, doing such a thing. So, um, so the, the important discovery for you was really, I wield a lot of power in the edit room. I can really manipulate a story, the point of view. And I think a lot of times the word manipulation is taking out of context. Oh, how dare we? We don't manipulate. We just convey. Re no, we don't. We no. manipulate everything. We manipulate. Even if it's yeah. for the best of intentions. What the One of the analogies that I use all the time when people want me to explain what we do for a living, I say, I play Tetris all day long with people's emotions. I move all <laughs> the little blocks around and I build all these patterns in a timeline. Line, but the movement of these blocks creates specific feelings and emotions. And ultimately, when you talk to most, if not all editors, and frankly, most creatives, the reason we ultimately do what we do is we want to convey a certain feeling and tell a certain story. Otherwise, right. why in the world would we spend 80 hours a week in small, dark, windowless rooms behind computers? Right. There are Looking probably at the a lot same of scene over and over and over. Exactly. And over. <laughs> so we're going to talk a lot more about the lifestyle that you lead as far as how it is on a TV series versus a feature. And especially if you're working on a TV series where you're the only editor, which is a very unique uh, situation. That's one that even I haven't been in in my entire career. Um, but what I want to talk a little about a little bit more are the themes that I see inherent in some of the different things you work on. Because one of the things that I talk about a lot with my students is that if you're really going to devise a chess strategy, one of your first moves is you have to identify what are my creative needs and my passions. And you found that you really love the process of manipulating story and picking a specific point of view. But with this documentary that you mentioned and with the Queen's Gambit and with On the Basis of Sex specifically, and we could dive into other ones. But what I'm already seeing is this pattern of this underdog unknown that nobody really pays attention to that rises up from the ground and really 
teaches the world something. Would you say that I'm on to something there? <laughs> oh, Zach. <laughs> you know, it's funny. You, yes, you are on to something. It's funny that you say that because when we had our friends and family, well, it wasn't the screening because we couldn't do it uh, in person. We had to do it all on pics. I invited a good friend of mine who assisted me for like four or five shows, who's now an editor now, Lisa De Marias, to, to be one of the viewers. And she watched it and she said, huh, like, I was thinking that you would really connect with this character, Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> she knows me so well. And yeah, I, I you know, it's yes, yes, yes. My sincerest apologies for the interruption, but if you're a creative professional who spends long hours at your workstation, not only is the following promo not an interruption, but listening has the potential to change your life. Because working with a topo mat underneath you at a height adjustable workstation is a game changer. Let's learn a little bit more from ErgoDriven co-founder and CEO Kit Perkins, creator of the topo mat. The topo mat is the first anti-fatigue mat designed specifically for standing desks. The real benefit of a standing desk is movement. We found bringing in this cushioned terrain under your feet, your brain just subconsciously engages and you wander around and you get that movement at the standing desk that you need without even having to think about it at all. People will come to me at an event or a panel and they'll say, I got the topo mat because of you. Even when they had a mat, once they used this one, it was a total game changer. We've just heard time and time again that with topo, we've kind of hit the sweet spot that it's the right premium quality materials and a right shape that people are actually getting benefit out of this stuff. You spend more time here than anywhere if you do creative work the way that I do. So I would rather be driving around in a Ferrari than a Ford Pinto. And I feel like this is the Ferrari of the standing mat. One of the things you don't realize is that at a standing desk, your main interface to the world, your body's main interface to the world is the ground. If you're gonna invest in anything at that Ferrari level, it should be what you're standing on. Well, my goal is that for anybody that is a creative professional like myself, that's stuck in front of a computer for inordinate amounts of time of their waking life, they're doing it standing on a topo mat. So uh, you and I, my friend, one edit station at a time are going to change the world. I like it. That's a utopian vision I can get on board with. If you're a creative professional looking for a simple and affordable way to stay active, energetic, and focused while spending long hours at your height adjustable workstation, I can't stress enough how important it is to have the right mat underneath you, which is why I continue to share the Topo Mat as my number one product recommendation. To learn more about the Topo Mat and purchase yours, visit optimizeyourself.me slash Topo. That's T-O-P-O. So let's, let's dig into that a little bit deeper. Having just gone through the entire series for the Queen's Gambit, I've never met you before up until this call tonight. As we talked about a little bit before, I feel like we know each other. But at the same time, we don't actually know each other. And I thought, I, I can see a lot of at least the persona that I know of Michelle in this character. Why is that? What, where are the similarities? Why would your friend have pulled that out of the Queen's Gambit of all things? Well, I think that it's funny because I, I have other girlfriends of mine who are editors who maybe got their start a little bit later than me, but, you know, we're, we're the same age or something. And and the constant that I always get is, oh, Michelle, you know, you're so confident in what you do and, and all that. And I think what I see in Beth is there's this matter of fact confidence that she has about her skills and her abilities because she does it 
not because she's trying to be good at something, but it's for a different reason. It's how she sees the world. It's how she, she escapes from the world. And she knows she's good at it, obviously, at on some lo- you know, logistical level. And I guess I... I guess I'm similar to that. It's like I, you know, I, you know, I don't want to say, hey, I'm great at this because there's, there's always, you know, as you know, you, you go through your career and you realize, oh, you know, I, I don't know how to do that, or I, I didn't realize I could solve that problem this way, or, or whatever. But I always, my personality, I just kind of like go for what I want, and I don't really, th- I don't really care if people like me or don't like me. And so I'm willing to go out there and like piss somebody off or offend somebody or, or I'm not worried about someone rejecting me because, oh, well, you know, get in line, you know, but, <laughs> you know, and so I think it's like, at least I asked. So, so I know now I know I'll go over there and ask this person or something. So um, I think she kind of imbues that you know, embodies that personality a little bit. And also, I mean, there's the general thing when, when I started, you know, there, there's a lot of men, you know, in our, in our industry. And, you know, I'm used to being like one of few women and I'm actually very comfortable in that situation. I'm not saying that that's great or anything like that, but I, I never let that bother me so much unless somebody had pointed it out you know, but it never intrinsically bothered me. So, and I feel like she's that way too, (laughs) you know? And then I also think that there's just some awkwardness and this is very personal, but of how she relates to men and how she relates to intimate relationships in general. Like, you know, I, you know, I had a working mother, single mother, I have two older siblings, but they're really a lot older, like 10 and 14 years older than me. So I was alone a lot, lived in my head a lot. And as you know, now that I'm saying it, it's like, that's the same. She's like always by herself, always in her head. And it's always like imagining. So it's difficult when, you know, you see a lot of these characters in the show, you know, are trying to get close to her and she has no idea what to do with it how to, how to relate to them. I mean, geez, poor Harry Beltic, you know, and, and I feel like I've been in those situations sometimes, but yeah, there, there's, there's a lot, there's a lot. And I was going to say a lot of those character traits sound uh, somewhat similar to uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, on the basis of sex. There's, uh, there's, a, there's a, some other similarities there, no? Yeah, I guess so. You know, what's funny. I, I loved working on a movie, obviously, because, you know, you're, you're trying to, you're telling a story about this icon who's really done so much for me as a woman, the world overall, for all, for both men and women. That's what's so great about that story is like, it's not just, you know, she, she did something for a woman. She did something for a man in terms of equality for both sexes. I mean, that, that's amazing. And, and yeah, again, awkward, but like living a life that for her time, you know, she was kind of pushing against the grain. I mean, she really reminds me a lot about, you know, how my mother lived. You know, she's my mom's super, really smart. She could never be kind of pinned down. And she lived for all intents and purposes, sort of an unconventional life um, by being single for most of her life and just working and really good at her job. And 
And I, yes, the justice, the life that we were presenting in the movie anyway, you know, as I learned more about her, it, you know, it's very similar. It's just like, she just had a thing that she needed to do. And I mean, I don't know if it's luck, but she was lucky to have people around her who supported her. Because really, when you think about it at the time, she could have been with anybody who would have tried to squash those dreams. But, you know, Marty and his family really, really supported her. And she also had a very strong mother figure who wanted to push her in that direction. So Yes, that's true. It's very similar. And, and, and I remember my husband, well, my husband now, my fiance, then, you know, he was taking some time off. He's also in the business. He was with me seeing, you know, seeing this movie come together. And actually when we screened the movie for the justice in DC, he happened to be there working on Wonder Woman. So he was allowed to come to the screening because, you know, it was a very, you had to give the list and she, and the justice invited her family and all of her clerks. And we went to see it. And she was so like this amazing woman who's like four foot 11, <laughs> you know, very soft spoken. It was probably like the highlight of my career is like meeting Ruth Bader, you know, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and hoping I wasn't going to say something stupid, you know? And I remember after coming home from that, like all of a sudden, and after seeing the movie, he was like, well, yeah, may, maybe, honey, maybe I'll stay home. And, you know, and like he was so affected by how like Marty Ginsburg was and like how amazing she was. I was like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> I don't want you to stop what you love. But, you know, it was very strong women, I guess. Um, interesting personalities. What was well, the other I, movie that you that you wanted to, that you mentioned? So you said. Well, it was the documentary film that you talked about. That was your spark of inspiration because there's another person that was kind of coming out of the ether from nowhere, having this impact on people because they just, this is who I am. This is the the performance art. This is the lesson I'm going to teach. And I love this image of him just constantly dropping the skateboard, thinking to himself, you realize I can do this myself. Why? It it caused you to think differently about the way you perceive somebody with a disability. Right. Exactly. Right? In, in, in certain contexts, whether it's chess or whether it's law, being a female was a disability. Like, sure. Right? So, and I, sure. it's, it's eerie to me how similar you and I are, because this whole thing of like, I just see it and I go for it. Like, oh my God, that's my MO, sometimes to my detriment. It can be a superpower. It can be a kryptonite. Same thing for me, right. like a little over three years ago, overweight, out of shape, felt like crap. I'm like, you know what? I think I'm going to be an American Ninja Warrior. That sounds like fun. <laughs> just said, I'm going to do it. There's no reason that it made any sense whatsoever. But once I set my mind to it, I had the confidence that I could figure it out and make it happen. And I think that's what you're pointing out in these characters that's so similar to you, is that there's a fine line between confidence and arrogance. And I think that was a line that Beth found uh, over the course of the series. But as little as age nine and 10, you could just tell she already knew I'm the best at this. Right. Maybe I can't beat the best yet, but I know I'm the best in the world at this one thing. And there's a part of you that I also sense that you just know I'm really, really good at what I do. And there are still a lot of things to learn, a lot of uh, different techniques, different stories that I can tell. There are always going to be new challenges and problems to solve. But you just exude the idea that I go in the room, I can solve your problems, and I know I'm good at what I do. Yes, it probably. It, it's hard for me to say that about myself, but I, I know that about myself. And I know other people who know me will say 
would would say that is absolutely so so true. basically within the first 15 minutes of our psychoanalysis session we now better understand your childhood and your your really deeper inner workings for why you're doing what you're doing um like i said this is going to be a little bit off the beaten path for our usual interviews i love but it this is I really wanted to understand what makes you tick because to get where you are at your age with all of the various quote unquote disabilities, it's pretty difficult to get to the stage of your career where you are now. And one of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show is I've had multiple people in my program where when I teach them how to do outreach and connect with people that they want to learn from, as you know, now more than one have said the number one person on my list that I really want to talk to is Michelle Tesoro because she inspires me to believe that as a woman, and I even had a, a Filipino woman that said, mm-hmm. I can actually do this. I never actually yeah. saw myself doing this. But now that I see somebody else that's successful, I have no excuse and I know that I can do it. And there was a quote yeah. that you brought up about this idea of being a woman specifically in the world of editing. And I want you to expand mm-hmm. on this a little bit. It was, it was a brilliant quote. You said, we are all the same height when we sit in the chair. It's all about your mind and your solving strategy, your ability to solve problems. So I love everything about that, except for the visual of sitting in a chair, because of course I prefer your standing and moving. We won't get into that quite yet. But talk to me a little bit more about this equalizer of being a woman versus a man once you're in the editing chair. I mean, I think no matter what your instrument is, you have to do the job through an instrument, whatever that's going to be, right? It was film and now it's you know not NLEs and now we're you know at a computer and you're doing it and it seems to me no matter what the technology you're you're basically performing the same job it's you're talking with another person or maybe a group of people and you're trying to solve a problem together by putting picture together and and that has to come from internal and your brain and how you communicate that if you're six four or if you're five one, right? So I think because I well, a lot of people view, you know, editors view editing as more of an intellectual sport, I believe that is that's the equalizer, right? Because you can't you can't do it unless you're actually, you know, doing it in your mind. And it kind of doesn't matter like physical uh, attributes. So. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with all of that which brings me back to this idea of mindset. If we're going to play the chess match and we're going to sit at the board, if you're thinking to yourself, I could never figure this out and I'm never going to win. Yeah. It doesn't matter how much strategy I teach you or skills or tactics or secrets. If you don't believe you can do it, there's no point. So you have to sit at the board and believe that you can do it. And you believe that you can do it. And you saw this great equalizer of, well, we're all going to be the same height when we sit there. So if I can solve problems better and I can communicate and I can manage a room and manage all the various personalities, because there are so many things that an editor has to be great at beyond the timeline. I think that's one of the fallacies. Um, and it's right. it's the most common thing you're going to talk about. Like, how did you organize your sequences and how do you watch your dailies? All of that's great. But I believe that being amazing in the timeline or amazing in your NLE is the minority of the skills you need to be really good at to be a successful yeah, editor. So what do you think some of those additional soft skills are that you bring to the table? And I know that you're probably like, oh, I've, I have a hard time talking about these things about myself. So I'm going to rephrase it. If I'm talking to one of your closest colleagues, And I asked them, what are the soft skills that Michelle brings to the table that would make her a great asset to my team? How would they answer that question? Well, I think 
first and foremost, you need to understand how to talk about the story, about the problem at hand. So in terms of, I feel like because I know how to verbalize what might be right or wrong about whatever we're doing and have a conversation that isn't, you know, laced with other desires or, or fears, you know, people feel comfortable with having that conversation with me and we can actually, and I feel, I think that they feel, well, this is what I'm hoping, but I think that they feel like they're free to, to talk about what they actually want out of what we're trying to do and that I understand what their goals are. You know, because we're we're focused on the story and maybe something I've said clicks with them or leads them to understand that I understand them. So it's it's really like being able to talk to whoever I'm working with and understanding where they're coming from. So there's that. And I also think that I, I'm I'm fairly good at reading the room. I mean, that's important for anybody to know. It's like, you know, when you're going to overstep, you know, when to shut up, you know, when to leave the room, (laughs) if you need to leave the room and you know how to be supportive, even if I I guess the better way of putting it is, you know, when to give tough love and you know, when you, you have to be supportive. And I'm sort of like this because it's hard for me to, to be yes. You know, I don't do that. I think it takes a lot of energy and, you know, I, I, it's just easier if I'm dishonest. And I I tend to be honest, and sometimes that hurts some people's feelings, but what can I say? Sorry, but (laughs) um, that's just my personality. But I think that that works in an editing room because, you know, I see that, I see the, the time that we spend there as a director's last chance to try to make the thing that, that they initially wanted. So if it's not doing that, someone's got to say it. And I hope that if you've hired me, that you're okay with me saying that to you. Um, And if not, and I'm still there, then I'm here to support you, you know, but I I think people feel uh, it's more the previous than the latter. I have spent almost 10 years now raving about how much I love my topo mat. And I have finally discovered what I now consider the topo mat of desk chairs, the Core 360. The Core 360, spelled Q-O-R, is designed to keep me constantly moving while seated in an upright and balanced position. To learn more about how it works, let's hear from Core 360 founder, Dr. Turner Osler, about why he created the Core 360 active sitting chair. When you sit badly, you sit badly for many hours a day. And that's really what the problem is. It's very hard to make yourself get up and do jumping jacks every half hour. But if you just swap to a chair that requires you to be muscularly engaged in order not to fall off, it's an easy bar to clear. For the procrastinators out there who hear all of the statistics and know how bad sitting is and it's the new smoking and they're thinking, that's something I'll worry about in a few decades, you're gonna feel the effects of having more energy at two o'clock in the afternoon or four o'clock in the afternoon that day. And that's the whole point. Your core muscles will be stronger. You'll have less back pain. All of this will make you more available for the rest of the pursuits of your life, your kids, your hobbies, your whatever. For those of us who need to practically live in front of computers to do our best creative work, the Core 360 is going to level up your game. Keep your body moving and keep the creative
creativity flowing. To learn more and purchase what I consider to be the topo mat of desk chairs, please go to optimizeyourself.me slash core360. That's optimizeyourself.me slash QOR360. I agree with everything, but I want to add a caveat. I think you and I are very similar. I would love to share a wall someday on a series just like to, to, to collaborate and see if all my suspicions are true. But I think you're similar to me and that you have no problem being brutally honest, sometimes maybe to the point of fault where you're like, "Mm, maybe I shouldn't have shared that much about how I feel about the scene, but that only works if you work with people that trust you. That trust is such an important component. And you strike me as somebody that can build that trust early on because you have that level of confidence and you take the time to learn about the story and really understand and communicate what are your visions? What are your desires for the story? Therefore, when you have objections or you say that things don't work, I feel like if that trust is there, the note or the idea behind all of them is I'm just trying to protect this. So would you agree that that's also your approach? I mean, I think. To an extent, yes, like once you have that trust, it's a lot easier for me to be that way. But sometimes you got to be that way out of the gate. Like I've found in in recent years that me being that way out of the gate and conveying that I'm not afraid of you rejecting my idea, you know, and I'm not going to be hurt if you decide this isn't going to work out or you think I'm wrong um, it's like the lack of fear of being disappointed is not a part of this. I think people respect that. And then they really feel like you're, you're, whatever you're saying must be true. And it's not because you want to be liked. And it's not because you want to keep your job. It's because we're, whatever you're talking about is, is they see it as truth, you know? So and and I, it's hard to know whether you're conveying because I feel like out of the gate, if you're like that and they're like, okay, that's who she is, then I know that moving forward, when she says something, it's not she's not bullshitting me because before she didn't bullshit me. You see what I'm saying? I absolutely see what you're saying. And this goes to another thing that I talk about with my students, which is that in addition to pursuing a project because you're creatively passionate about the theme or the story or the genre or the style, you also have to make sure you're collaborating with people that are the right fit. And I'm Mm. guessing there's at least one point in your career where you were just honest out of the gate and there was no bullshit. And that probably didn't work so well. And you realize, mm, maybe this isn't such a good fit. I know I've had that experience. And sometimes that's yeah. a blessing in disguise because you don't want to go down the road for three months, six months, yeah. a year with people that see you as an operator. Right. No, that's true. I mean, I think, yeah, you know what I think about it. I, I think it happened early on in my career. I, I want to say that I, I probably have been lucky or maybe it's not luck. Maybe it's because I'm this way. It's like I, I'm naturally going to go with this group versus that group you know, because they're not going to like me in an interview where they're not going to really dig, dig me in the beginning. Like, I, I don't think I've ever been like, go for that, but I, I don't think I've ever been chosen, you know? And that, and that to me <laughs> is not luck. If you've right. uh, listened to any of my past shows and my regular listeners know that I call luck yeah. a four letter word because right. luck is a cop out. <laughs> if you walk sure. across okay. the street and you get hit by a bus, that's bad luck. It just is what it is. But right. I think the fact that you've avoided the pitfalls of working on projects that aren't a good fit is because you just wake up every morning and you say, this is me. 
I'm authentic. Right. I'm confident in who I am. And guess what? A lot of people don't like that. Right. And they're going to say, nah, I don't think Michelle's a good fit for us. But that's because right. you're putting out the authentic version of you and like attracts like. So right. I don't think it's as lucky Absolutely. as you might think, right? Um, and yeah, this brings sure. me to another idea that I want to get into that's more about the chess mindset versus checkers, which is that when you're playing a game of chess, and the ironic thing is here, and I think you would agree with me, I actually know very little about the game of chess. And I know that you've talked about how you're like, I don't really understand chess either, Shh. right? But when it comes to the theory and idea and strategy of chess, I love it. And it's this idea that you have to make a lot of sacrifices along the way. And I think that the most important word or important words that you have to focus on in navigating your career path are yes and no. Yes mm -hmm. can be a really Absolutely. dangerous word and no can be a very liberating word. So in your journey, can you think of more than one instance where the word no actually got you to where you are now? Oh boy, dear. I mean, this is the word no has been a practice <laughs> that I've had to get used to in recent years. So it's sort of relatively new for me, I want to say. I want to say it's been new since maybe maybe it was godless, maybe as prior to that. I, I don't now I don't remember, but I know it's it's the last two or three, four years where I know, you know, the body of work is now speaking for itself. I have enough um, history with a number of people that, I mean, jobs, if jobs are available, I'm going to be offered some, or at least knowing that they're, they're there for, for me to try to go for. And saying no has been the hardest thing because there are a lot of great projects out there and it's great when they want you. But is that you constantly have to think about what is the long-term goal? How do you want to spend your time over the next year? Because really, we're really committing a lot. You're not you're, you're committing your time, but you're also committing your brain energy. You're living in that world, you know, whatever world you, you decide the story you're going to tell. So that's important too. And and career-wise, is what I'm doing here. Not that you really know where the thing is going to lead you, because we never really know. But what can you get out of that time, uh, either educational or, or whatever, you know, relationships? And there's just so many variables. And I, I have to say, yeah, I mean, saying no, I mean, there's been a number of times where I've said no, I've pissed people off. And I'm getting better at not pissing people off because I just say no earlier or I don't get to the word no because somebody else says it before me before we even go down the path love my agent thank you Brady. <laughs> so you know what i mean so i'm getting better at, at arriving and the only way you you know that no <laughs> is if you know where you want to go you know you can't if you know what the goal is it's so much easier to be like eh, no eh, that's not that not that not that and all of a sudden when you've emptied your cup, you can fill it up again with the things that you might, that you actually want. Because the thing is, is if you keep entertaining these ideas of projects that, you know, doesn't really fit what your ultimate goal is, or to you, like may not be what you want to do that right now, maybe you just want to do something completely different. And yet 
they're, they might be very good projects and very val valuable and worthwhile, but you're not, because you're hanging on to them, you're not able to open yourself up to something new that might be better for you. And that, that to me is the key. I think that you nailed it there is by saying yes to everything. You're actually saying no to potentially yes. better opportunities down the road oh, yeah. it's always because you're, because you're afraid, right? You're just afraid right. that maybe that might not come. And I want right. to play the devil's advocate for a second, because I know there's at least somebody listening that's a little bit younger earlier in their career. And they're saying, give me a break. Michelle Tesoro and Zach Arnold, who've edited Queen's Gambit and Cobra <laughs> Kai and all these shows. Of course, they can say no, but I'm just starting my career. I've been saying oh, no, no since no. I was in yeah. high school. The reason I am where I am is because of a very specific string of no's. And I bet that even though you've only honed the skill in the last few years, you, you are better at it early in your career than you might have thought. I think I know I was better at it before, but now the no's are a little harder. They're a little bit more complicated. It's kind of like when you get to like level six of double dragon or whatever, you know? So like, yeah, because the beginning knows I was very clear because, and, and well, it starts with saying I'm better at editing than this other stuff. Deciding I'm going to take this track. I know I'm not good at this, even though that seems interesting at, I'm going to, put all my efforts here. I remember when I moved out to Los Angeles, you know, I had a lot of friends who are working in reality and documentary. Well, one friend was very successful at it. And she was really cutting a lot, you know, and, and making really good money. And when I came out here, I knew from the, the reason why I was leaving New York is like, I couldn't get into editing anything. So I had talked to, you know, some editors that I met at school and some other editors who happened to be ACE members who were alum of, of our school. And they, uh, the first thing that they would say to me is, okay, you got to get into the union. You have to be an assistant editor. So they grilled, they drilled that into me. And when I looked at that, I was like, yeah, okay. So when I came out, I just had, I knew that I had to at least do that track because everybody who, you know, we had this editing class in, in NYU where the teacher, she was in her 90s, Laura Hayes. All the alum would come back and talk about their career. And we met editors, we met assistant editors, people who worked in doc, people who worked on in features, all different kinds of people. And it really seemed that there there was a track, you know, and and I knew I had to do that. So when I came out to LA, I was like, okay, I got to do this. And I remember for like a couple of years, I was doing, being an assistant and my friend is documentary editor and all due respect to her, you know, was like, I don't know why you're doing that. You're not doing anything creative. Don't you want to be creative? Don't you want to edit? And I was like, well, yeah, but I'm not going to do it doing that. That's going to be hard to jump that ladder once, once we go up, you know, I'd rather start now. Cause I'm 20, whatever, I forgot 26 or something like that. You know, it's easier for people to swallow 26, 26 year old trying to be an assistant editor. I'm not going to discover it later when I'm 30 something and I want to jump. And then I, I don't know what my obligations are going to be at that time. So I knew I was free and I was, I was starting over anyway. And I think that was the first real no. Um, and that, that's a scary one. Cause you were probably scary. turning down 
jobs that maybe could have paid more money or would have been easier at the time, but you knew it didn't fit with your long-term goals. And that's something I talk about incessantly with my students. You have to be clear on the goal. And I think one of the fears is, well, I don't know what to do with the rest of my life. And I always tell them, you don't have to know for the rest of your life, but you need to be confident about what comes next. Otherwise, you have no way to discern if this is a yes or a no. And then instead of you having a plan, you just become a part of somebody else's plan. And right. that that's not the life that I want to lead. I feel like we've got very limited time and I want to get the most out of it. And that means you have to get good at saying the word no. And it requires both the mindset of I'm confident I'm going in the right direction, even if it might not feel like it. But also I'm willing to make a few sacrifices or a few pawns, if you will, going back to our chess analogy. Yeah. That having been said, another thing that you've talked about is that you have to be prepared whether it's financially prepared. I know that you've talked about this in some past articles, but you have this yeah. idea that beyond financial capital, it's something that you called having your own human capital. I've never heard that term before. Explain wow, to me what pulling, that means. You're pulling from the archives, Zach Arnold. I told you I did my research. <laughs> I, I, You are a student and a scholar. I think that, so... In terms of your human capital, I mean, you know, it's a little like sweat equity, right? Um, I think when you're younger and, you, and well, I shouldn't say that because there are a lot of older people that have way more energy than I do. But if you have the energy and the drive, like I think early on when you're just trying to make inroads and you're honing your craft, you really got to be working on this because as you said earlier, you know, the job is a lot about how, how you're in the room, politicking in the room, like how, how do you manage a room, but you have to have the craft down. Like you don't think about it, you know, and in order to get to that point, you have to put, you know, your Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours, in, right. You have to like, get it get to that point where whatever you're doing that that's your art and you don't have to think about it and I think a lot of people too you know in the beginning I was noticing you know some people just didn't want to give up their weekend or they didn't want to do stay late or they didn't want to come in earlier you know they'd rather go and do this or that and not saying that that's wrong because I think you do get to a point where you're like all right I need my weekend <laughs> and that's a good thing but I think in the beginning, when you're trying to get get to a place where the thing is is running on its own, you have to build you have to build the the, the product. So and the product has to be good. So I, I think I'm trying to remember in what context I had said that. But the way that's the way that I think about it now. It's just like, well, you have a lot of you can put a lot of you into it, and I think people do see that. Do you remember what what was that article from? Do you remember? Um, I didn't actually write down the the specific <laughs> reference. I, I, I read through uh, quite a few uh, older articles and interviews, and I don't remember which one I pulled it from. But I think the important thing to really pull out of this is a realization that a lot of creative professionals don't have until later in their career, which is that you are a business. You are the yeah. CEO of your own business. And I think that so few people realize that because we feel more like we're a tradesman or a craftsman. But nowadays, you are your own business and you've used terms like sweat equity and capital. These are all words yeah. that they use in business and entrepreneurship. And you have to, like you said, hone those skills and hone those abilities, which brings me back full circle to the very first thing I said in your introduction, which is you have the esteemed credit of having not gotten the internship for ACE. However, 
very early in your career, you found tremendous opportunity in that. And I think people need to understand that mindset and that viewpoint. So even though you didn't get it, talk to me how you got something out of a non-opportunity. Well, you know what's really cool? I I don't know what they do now. It may be the same. Is you can apply for for at the time that I did, which was in 2004, uh, you could apply for the internship. And if you didn't get it, you know, which they they basically only could offer it to two people. So it's high chances you're not going to get it is you can participate in a in a week long workshop that they that they hold where you can meet assistant editors, you can meet editors, you can meet the people who are organizing the internship and they kind of give you a little bit of a workshop of what it's like to be an editor what it's like to be assistant editor. I found it very practical knowledge that they were imparting. And, and I went there. I did, this is when I first, I first decided to move to Los Angeles. And so I didn't know anybody. So it was very exciting because there's all these people were doing the thing that I wanted to do and you could talk to them. <laughs> and then there's people there who were like you, who, you know, came from wherever they came from. And, um, and I sat next to a, a young man Patrick, who was really nice. And he also did not get the internship, (laughs) but he was there as well, uh, taking notes. And at the time was going to assist Lori Jane Coleman on the pilot she was about to do, which was literally like the next month was March. And so we became friends and, and whatnot. And then he emailed me saying, Hey, you know, they're looking for a PA. And, uh, you know, they're trying to staff the post crew, you know, are you interested? I was like, oh yeah, you know? And so he got, I gave him my resume, gave it to, uh, Carrie Young, who was the AP on the show. And I met with her and she gave me the job, but I get, I think, I don't know how I finagled it, but I didn't get the PA job. I got the coordinator job, which I'm like, okay, what's that? All right, whatever. Don't worry. I'll tell you what to do. Carrie, um, really cool lady. So we worked and I swear to God, I hated, I didn't hate the job, but it was like perfect for someone who had no knowledge of the industry. Cause I could just literally be like a fly on the wall and watch all this stuff happen and, you know, see how the editor and the assistant editor work together, see how all the producers come in. Like, and like, you know, it was a lot of being on the phone and I, I hate being on the phone and Carrie used to do this thing to me where I, I was on the phone with someone, she would come up to me and start talking to me and it would literally cancel each other out. And she would do that just to screw around with me. So, <laughs> but, which is fun, but you know, I, it was really great because I got to know that. And actually the person I was talking to all the time was Bruce Santamere at ABC, who was the post exec. And, you know, he, because I like knew I, I had helped Patrick. P- Patrick was having a hard time because he was also new at the time. So sometimes I would go help him with things, figure things out in the avid. And they took note of that. So just because I kind of knew and I wanted to help and you know, I wasn't trying to steal his job or anything, you know, certainly not. Um, but the AP recognized it and Bruce Sandemir recognized it. And so my next, I was able to get an assistant editor job through that on another project. So to me, that was like awesome. (laughs) And again, I don't believe any of that was luck. As somebody who says, I don't want to be on set. I don't like to be around a lot of people. You still went to the event. 
You met people, you introduced yourself, you built relationships, and you took a job that really wasn't well suited for you, but it put you in the position to see the whole playing field and watch all the players in their different positions and say, you know what? I think I get how the game is played now. Now I can go to work and you for like, I now know which rung of the ladder I want to grab onto. I'm going to grab the bottom rung and then I can climb it to the top. And here you are at the, what I would call maybe not the very tippy top of the ladder, but boy, are you close. Thank you so much for investing both your time and energy listening to today's show. If you were inspired by this conversation, don't forget to subscribe in your podcast app of choice and most importantly, leave a review because that helps move the show to the top of iTunes and get our message out there to those who need it the most. Simply visit optimizeyourself.me slash subscribe to never miss another episode. Lastly, stay safe, healthy, sane, and most importantly, be well. One last thing before I lose you. If you haven't already, I wanna make sure that you subscribe to my free weekly Case of the Mondays newsletter because it is where I share my best advice, strategies, and mindsets to help you design a creative career that you absolutely love showing up for every Monday morning. When you sign up, I'm even gonna send you a bonus five-day email course to help you clarify and prioritize the next small steps in your unique path to success. To sign up, just visit optimizeyourself.me slash newsletter, and I will see you in your inbox.